0: Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. As you're turning there, I just want to cause you to consider that no single human being has had a greater impact upon human history than Jesus Christ. And that's just simply an indisputable fact. The question we have to ask is, why? Why? And to answer that, you really have to answer another question, and that is, who is Jesus? Now, of course, there are many places you can go to answer that. People have been talking about Jesus ever since he lived on earth 2,000 years ago, and there's there's much to be read about him, primarily from Christian writers, but also from non-Christian writers as well, both modern and ancient. However, nearly everything that all these people have said about Jesus is based upon information about him that is contained in a small collection of ancient books that we call the New Testament. More specifically, almost all the historical information that we have about Jesus comes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are some references to Jesus in in some other ancient historical documents, but the vast majority of the data about Jesus's life on earth is found in these four New Testament books. Everyone else gets their information about Jesus from those sources, unless they're making it up out of thin air, which also happens. And there's a reason for this. These are by far the earliest documents written about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for instance, are the only historical documents about Jesus written from the century in which he lived, the first century. And these are the only historical documents which even claim to be based on first-hand accounts of people who knew him. Matthew and John, for instance, claim to be writing based upon their own experience of living in close quarters with Jesus up for the three years of his public ministry. Mark's account is purportedly based upon the experience of Peter, another one of Jesus' close followers. And Luke opens his book by just openly claiming that his account of Jesus' life is based upon the testimony of these and other eyewitnesses. So in the days before audio or video recording, you can't get much better than multiple historical records about a person's life by those who knew him personally and who corroborate each other's testimony. So if you're going to answer the pressing question, who is Jesus, so that you might understand why he had A greater impact upon human history than any other person, what better place to go than to the historical accounts of his life, which were written by those who knew him personally and were there to observe his words and his deeds firsthand? Today, we're going to turn to the fourth gospel written by John. Now, John claimed to have an especially intimate friendship with Jesus. In fact, at the end of his account of Jesus' life, the fourth gospel, he talks about, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loves. And then he says this, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. See, it's sort of a clever way of saying, I, who have written this book, am the disciple whom Jesus loved. This means that the author of John can only be the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' 12 inner circle disciples who had followed Jesus throughout his ministry, who had stood there at the cross to watch him die, who had found the empty tomb early on the third day after his death, who had seen Jesus alive again in the body on several occasions afterwards. It's interesting, he could say in the opening lines of his first letter, 1 John, that he was proclaiming to his readers what he had heard, what he had looked upon with his eyes, what he had touched with his hands concerning the word of life that is Jesus. Now, if we want to know who Jesus is, we can't do much better than John's testimony. So, let's read the first lines of John's account of Jesus' life in John 1, 1-5. Let's read together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. These verses are part of what has often been called the prologue of John's gospel. And it's important to understand a little bit about this section and how it functions before we dive into these verses. D.A. Carson, one of the preeminent scholars in John's writings, has described The prologue, John 1, 1 through 18, as being like a foyer to the rest of the fourth gospel. In other words, it's the entryway into the book. And the reason John invites you to enter his account of the gospel through these first 18 verses is because they are specifically designed to draw you in, as Carson says, and to prepare you to read the rest of the book by introducing to you in a scattered fashion some of its major themes. And that's why, if you read John for the first time, you might not understand a lot in the prologue, but then after you've read through the whole book and go and read it a second time, you go, oh, I see what he was doing there. It should also be said that this prologue is somewhat parallel to the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke, in, in that it speaks about Jesus' origins. And I'm going to use that term loosely here. Origins in terms of... Uh, where he came from as a man. Except, whereas the birth narratives begin with Jesus' entrance into the world, John's prologue doesn't start there. It begins with Jesus' presence at creation, the creation of the universe. Then, later on in verse 14, describes his entrance into the world. It's very provocative stuff, you know, for one Person to say about another human being. Nevertheless, it reflects what John had come to believe about this man, Jesus, whom he knew so well. And by starting with these astonishing claims about Jesus in his prologue, John intends to draw you in to hear what he has to say in the rest of the book. So let's turn then to look more closely at these first five verses of the prologue to John's gospel, and let's just consider these startling things they have to say about the man who more than any other has shaped the course of human history. And there are four main things that these verses say about him. First, they tell us, Jesus is God. The opening words of John's gospel are, in the beginning, which quite obviously echo the opening words of the whole bible of the old testament in genesis chapter 1 verse 1 which also read in the beginning indeed what we'll see is that much of what john says in these first 5 verses of his gospel echo the events of genesis 1 of course when genesis 1:1 1, 1 says in the beginning it's talking about the beginning of the universe Because it goes on to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when John opens his gospel with that same phrase, in the beginning, he seems to be referring back to that same event. In fact, he mentions it explicitly in verse 3 as the moment when all things were made. So John opens his gospel by taking his readers back to the beginning, the beginning of the universe. And he says, the word was there. In fact, when he says, in the beginning was the word, the verb was is in the imperfect tense. That means it's describing a past action that is in process. In the beginning, when the universe was created, the word was there, existing, The implication is that the word was there before all things were created, which is not really proper to say because before indicates time, and time itself was one of the things created. So it might be better to say that when John says, in the beginning was the word, he's indicating that the word is outside of creation and therefore eternal. But this, of course, provokes the immediate question. Who or what is the word? Because in the Bible, there are only two categories of things that exist. God and his creation. Since God created everything, besides everything which exists, besides his, (laughs) sorry, since God created everything which exists besides himself, and the only thing that exists outside of creation is God. So when John says, in the beginning was the Word, indicating that the Word was already existing when the universe was created, that would imply that the Word was God. And indeed, this is what John went on to say in the rest of verse 1. Except for the little twist. Because after saying, in the beginning was the Word, John continued, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now Moses had told us In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here in the first verse of John's gospel, he tells us that the word was with God when that happened. By saying that the word was with God in the beginning, well, John's obviously indicating that there's some distinction between the word and God, but it also indicates something more than that. You know, the Greek word translated with, it's the preposition pros. D.A. Carson says this about it. He says, in all but one or two peculiar constructions, pros may mean with only when a person is with a person, usually in some fairly intimate relationship. In other words, we need more information to confirm it, But John seems, with this language, to be subtly indicating that the Word is a person distinguishable in some way from God, but enjoying a relationship with God in the beginning, prior to the creation of the universe. And you say, but this is confusing. The only being in existence prior to creation was God. God alone is eternal. So how could the Word be with God? In the beginning, without being God. And so John clarifies in the next phrase. And the word was God. And suddenly our mind is blown because John just said the word was with God. That is somehow distinct from God and in relationship with God, how could he now say now the word was God? That is somehow God himself. Some, like the ancient Arians or the modern Jehovah's Witnesses, claim that John is simply saying the word is a God. In other words, well, he's divine in some lesser sense than God, something like a demi-God. But such an interpretation is the furthest thing from the mind of a first century monotheistic Jew like John. Rather, what is happening here is that John was drawing us into a mystery by introducing us to A person he calls the Word, who is simultaneously a distinct person in relation to God, the Word was with God, and yet identical to God in nature, the Word was God. Now that may seem mysterious and difficult to comprehend, and that's true, but it reflects the broader teaching of the New Testament about God. Because when you read the New Testament, you see affirmed in its pages that there are three persons identified as God who exist simultaneously in relation to one another, and yet you also seem affirmed unblinkingly that there's only one God. All three persons share the one divine nature. The church has called this the doctrine of the Trinity. They described it by saying that God is One in nature and three in person, or the one God, the one being, God, is three persons who eternally exist in relation to one another. And indeed, that mysterious unity and diversity that we observe in creation reflects the mysterious unity and diversity within the God who created it. But finally, we must answer the question, okay, but still, who specifically is this person that John calls the Word and then describes in the rest of the verse? Well, John keeps us in suspense. He doesn't tell us right away. In fact, the identity of the Word isn't made explicit until verse 17, at the very end of the prologue, where he finally names the figure that he'd been talking about throughout. He names him as Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word in verse one. Now, let that revelation sink in. John, who had lived with Jesus for three years, walking the dusty roads of Palestine, come to know him very well, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved, is now telling you that he came to believe that the person who was born into this world as the man Jesus existed beforehand as God. He was already existing when God created the world in the beginning. He was a distinct person in relationship with God, but was also a full participant in the one divine nature. He was with God and was God. Now John is going to repeatedly affirm Jesus' pre-existence as God throughout this gospel. You know, one thinks of Jesus' own words that are recorded in John 8:58, where he tells the Jews, before Abraham was, I am, provoking the Jews to pick up stones and try to stone him for blasphemy. And this shocking belief about Jesus, it's not just John. It's affirmed throughout the New Testament. One thinks, for instance, of that beloved passage in which Paul said of Jesus in Philippians 2, 6-7. through 7. Think about this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Well, there it is again. Or consider Hebrews 1, verse 3, where the author described Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Well, that could not be said of a mere man, but only a man who was also the eternal God. This is exactly who the eyewitnesses tell us Jesus is. So first, John tells us Jesus is God. Second, he tells us that Jesus reveals God. Jesus reveals God. Now, of all the ways that John could have described Jesus in the opening verses of this prologue, he chose to call him the word, or Hologos in Greek. Why do he do that? This has been a subject of great interest in New Testament scholarship. Some have pointed out that in that day, the Greek word Hologos was used widely in Greek philosophy, to refer to the principle of reason which governs the universe. So some philosophers thought it referred to an impersonal principle of reason, reason with a capital R. And others thought it referred to God's own reason, the reason of a personal God. Others have pointed out, getting a little bit more biblical, that in intertestamental Jewish literature, in the wisdom books of the Jewish writers in between the Old and New Testament, they often talked about God's wisdom as if it were a distinct person with him in the beginning, through which he created everything. In fact, you even see this in the Old Testament wisdom literature if you look at Proverbs chapter 8. And this has led some people to think, well, maybe this is what John had in mind here when he spoke of Jesus as the eternal Logos of God. But I think there's actually a much more straightforward way to understand the reason John described Jesus as the Word of God in his prologue. You know, when he began by saying, in the beginning, he's drawing our minds back to those first words of Genesis 1-1, where it said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But if you keep reading in the chapter, the chapter went on to emphasize how God created and how did he create. He created the universe through his word so for instance in chapter 1 verse 3 it says and god said let there be light and there was light and that pattern of god speaking things into existence it's repeated in verse 6 verse 9 verse 11 verse 14 verse 20 verse 24 verse 26 in each instance you see the phrase and god said and it was so So when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and then he went on to say, of the Word in verses 2 through 3, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Do you see? A reader familiar with the Old Testament would have heard the echoes of Genesis 1, and they would have recognized that John is describing the Word, who we know as Jesus, as as the he's describing Jesus as the word of God by which we know from Genesis 1 he created all things in the beginning now of course it's not that Jesus is saying that John is saying that Jesus is literally the speech of God it's a metaphor it's used to communicate something about Jesus but what well first of all by describing Jesus as the word Well, John is emphasizing that Jesus was the one through whom God created the world. Since God created by his word throughout Genesis 1. And we're going to discuss that in a little bit. But I think John is also communicating something else about Jesus when he calls him the word. Something that he's going to emphasize again and again throughout this gospel. In Greek, the word logos it could refer to inner thought or outward expression. So it could be translated literally reason or word. Now here, John probably has the latter meaning in mind. In fact, the, the fact that your Bibles all say the word instead of the reason in John chapter 1, verse 1 shows that the translators agree. Now if that's correct, it indicates that by calling Jesus the Word, John was describing him as God's self-expression. In other words, it was a way of saying that God not only creates through Jesus, but reveals himself, expresses himself through Jesus. And indeed, the fact that John calls Jesus the Word, well, that's significant. It hints that he is the ultimate revelation of God. Now, as I mentioned before, one of the reasons for this interpretation is that it is a major theme in John's gospel. Over and over in the book, we're told that Jesus came to show us God. Just at the end of this prologue here, John makes it very clear. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God, literally, the only begotten who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. Or think of Jesus' response to Philip later on in chapter 14, verses 9 through 10. You remember where Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you still say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Do you see? Surely this is part of what John means when he describes Jesus as the word in John 1.1. It was a way of indicating that Jesus revealed God in a climactic way. By the way, this is not unique to John, is it? The New Testament writers taught the same thing on many occasions. I think of Paul's words when he said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. How do you see him? In Jesus. Colossians 1.15. The author of Hebrews, I mean, he might as well have been saying in the first three verses of Hebrews, he might as well have been saying Jesus is the word of God because what he says is long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, God, Jesus is the self-expression of God, and he's the perfect revelation of God. He's the exact representation of his nature. So, Second, John tells us that Jesus reveals God. Now, third, related to that, he tells us that God created all things through Jesus. Now, this is just very simply stated right there in verses 2 and 3. It says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, as I mentioned before, another reason why John calls Jesus the Word who was with God in the beginning was to emphasize his role as God's agent of creation. Genesis 1, as I mentioned, repeatedly says that God created everything by his word in the beginning. Over and over, you hear that phrase, God said, and it was so. Well, now John tells us that Jesus is the word of God by which he created in the beginning. Jesus was God's agent in the creation of everything that exists. And we might get more specific and say that Jesus, God the Son, was the agent through whom God the Father created the universe, to emphasize that they both share in the one divine nature. John emphasizes that indeed everything was created through Jesus. He couldn't be more clear, could he? He stated at first positively, all things were made through him, and then negatively, Without him, not anything was made that was made. Just to make sure there's no misunderstanding, all things without exception were made by God through his word, Jesus Christ. Now this was, of course, I mean, an astounding thing for one man, John, to say of another, Jesus. Imagine saying that about anyone else. Just picture it for a second. That they were in the beginning with God, and all things were made through them. It's preposterous. More than that, it would be blasphemous to say about any other man, any mere man. And that's the point, isn't it? When John took an activity that belonged exclusively to God in Scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he attributed it to Jesus as well. It was a way of affirming that the man, Jesus Christ, was also the eternal God. And to be more specific, of course, it indicated that what was stated in verse 1, that while Jesus, the Word, was a distinct person within the triune Godhead, yet he fully shared in the one divine nature. Because if all things are made through Jesus, then he must not be one of the things made. And there can never be, then, as the ancient heretic claimed, a time when he was not. Rather, the one who created all things must himself be the eternal, uncreated God. By the way, as fantastic as that statement about Jesus' identity is, it's not just John. It's reiterated several times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul famously said of Jesus in Colossians 1:16 and 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There we see Jesus not only made everything, but everything is made for him and is sustained by him. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So third, John tells us God created all things through Jesus. And then finally, fourth, he tells us that Jesus is the source of life and light for mankind. Jesus is the source of life and light for mankind. So you read in verses four and five, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, it's clear that John still has Genesis 1 in mind when he says these words, because the themes of light and darkness, as well as giving life, are prominent in that chapter, aren't they? So, for instance, after creating the heavens and the earth in verse 1, God created light out of the darkness by his word, verses 2 and 3. We read these verses, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And after making life possible by creating light, God went on to make living creatures to put on the earth, in whom were the breath of life. So verse 20 said, let the water swarm with Living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heaven. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God created light out of the darkness and gives life. And what John does in verses 4 and 5 of our text is he takes those activities of God in Genesis 1 and he attributes them to Jesus, the eternal divine word. So just as God created light out of darkness and gave life to his creatures in Genesis 1, so also the eternal word who was with God in the beginning, who was his agent in the creation of all physical things, is now a source of life and light to mankind today. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now of course we have to clarify. That as this theme unfolds in John's gospel. You see that the themes of light and darkness and life and death. Are not referring primarily to physical realities as they did in Genesis 1. But to spiritual realities right. So for instance darkness in John is does not just refer to physical darkness, but to a spiritual darkness, which covers the world as the world is in rebellion against God. It refers to the spiritual condition of fallen humanity, unbelieving human beings. It includes such things as blindness to the truth, wickedness of heart, subjection to death as the judgment of God. On the other hand, Light in John's gospel is not just physical light, but spiritual light, which shines into this darkened world from God, who is the source. It refers to things such as truth and righteousness, which are grounded in God's own holy character and then communicated to the world by his word and spirit, bringing spiritual and eternal life to those who receive the light by faith. Since Jesus is the word of God, who perfectly reveals God, he is described in John's gospel as the source of God's life-giving light to the world. And those who see the light and come to it, that is, who believe in him, receive eternal life. And what does eternal life consist of? Not just living forever, but it's salvation from death and eternal fellowship with God. So he famously said of himself in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But when John said in verse 3 of our text, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some translations say has not comprehended it. And that certainly is part of it. But I agree with the ESV and other translations who see it rather as taking that meaning of trying to subdue something, overcome. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. He indicates that Jesus' coming into the world was not well received by everyone in the world. Instead, the darkness sought to overcome the light. Because the truth and the righteousness which Jesus revealed from God exposed the error and the wickedness of mankind. And they didn't like that. You remember how John describes this very thing in John chapter 3 verses 19 through 21. He said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And yet the good news, which John announces in this book, is that all who are willing to come to the light by believing in Jesus, the light of the world, will receive from him eternal life that he offers. John 12:46 I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so that choice, articulated in John 3:36, is put before every reader of this book, including everyone here in this room today. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He remains in darkness. So in these opening five verses of John's gospel, the first part of his great prologue to the book, John tells us four things about Jesus. He is God. He reveals God. God created all things through him. And he is the source of light and life for mankind. Now, let me just close by reflecting on three ways that these truths should affect our lives today. There are many. Let me just highlight three. First, if John is telling us the truth, and he is, when he says of Jesus, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, then Jesus must be worshipped with reverence and awe. Because it means that Jesus is not just another great man from history, you know, perhaps a man of exemplary character or a great teacher, and Christianity is not just telling people to listen to Jesus and follow his example, be good like Jesus was. John, his words in the opening line of this gospel, they reveal that Christianity is saying something altogether different than that, that is, far more than that. Because John, who lived with Jesus, who saw him with his eyes, who heard him with his ears, who touched him with his hands, and became his intimate friend, the disciple whom Jesus loved, declares here his settled conviction that Jesus is God. It's what another one of Jesus' 12 disciples, Thomas, expressed at the end of the book in John 12, 28, upon seeing Jesus alive again, and Jesus saying, Go ahead. See the nail holes. Put your fingers in them. And he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, Thomas, that's a little over the top. You see, at the center of Christianity is the astounding claim that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, whose life is recounted in the four gospels, is the eternal God through whom the universe was made in the beginning. And this is why Christians reverence Jesus as Lord. Even his own half-brother, imagine it, who grew up with Jesus as his older brother. When he came to the end of his life, and Jesus had appeared to him alive from the dead, and he had become to believe in Jesus, he identifies himself, Jesus' younger brother, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians from the beginning have worshipped Jesus unabashedly. Why? Because they know that he is their God. And it's this very truth that makes Christians weep with gratitude and sing with joy that Jesus invites them to call him the second Adam their great high priest, their new Davidic king, their friend, their elder brother, their good shepherd, their great bridegroom, because it testifies to his unfathomable love and grace that he who was in the beginning and created the universe and is worshipped by all the creatures that he has made has taken on a human nature, one like our own, to become our mediator and to unite us to himself forever. What about you, believer? Do you have such a high view of Jesus? Have you really grasped, had you really appreciated that he is God? I would just encourage us to throw off the blinders from our heart this morning, take into our souls the full light of what is revealed about him by the Apostle John in verse 1. Second, if John is telling the truth, and he is, when he says that Jesus is the word of God, then we must look to him to know the truth about God. As image bearers of God, it's evident that human beings are hardwired to worship. The problem is that ever since the fall, human beings have been prone to think that they can gain access to God through their own efforts. They can know the truth about God by their own reasonings or by their own observations. They can worship him in ways that they have invented. But here's the truth. The gap between creator and creature, and ever since the fall, the gap now between holy God and sinful human beings is such that mankind cannot reach across it to grab hold of God. I mean, left to ourselves... We are separated from God. We cannot know the truth about him or gain access to him on our own. All of our attempts to do that are like trying to find a single penny somewhere on the earth with no light whatsoever. All our attempts are useless. The only hope of fallen human beings, knowing the truth about God and gaining access to him, is if he reaches across the gap to us and reveals himself to us. The question then is, has, is God willing to do that? And the profoundly good news, which John tells us here in our text, is that he is. Indeed, we see a talking God. And he has been speaking to his creatures, fallen though they are. As the writer of Hebrews said in many times and in many ways throughout history but in these last days he has spoken to us in a full and final way by his son Jesus Christ. Jesus, John says, 1-1 is the word of God. He is God's ultimate self-disclosure to a world of fallen human beings. Through him Man finally has true access to God in a full and final way because Jesus is God come down among us as a man. But even as I say that, it has to be said, if you want to know God, you must come to Jesus. As Jesus himself said, 14.6 of this gospel, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The greatest catastrophe of human history is what's described by John in verse 10 of this prologue. Look at what he says. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own. His own did not receive him. Any human being who rejects Jesus, who refuses to believe in him, will never know God truly, will never gain access to him, but will remain in darkness, hopelessly flailing about for the truth and under the sentence of death for sin, including the sin of not believing in him. What about you? Have you come to Jesus, the word of God, God's self-expression, So that you might know the truth about him. So that you might come into relationship with him. Or are you still trying to find that penny in the darkness? And believer, press into Jesus. Why would you not? To know God more and more in him. It's the greatest blessing you could ever have in this life. Third and last. If John is telling the truth, and he is, when he says of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and that the darkness shall not overcome it, then we must come to Jesus for life, and keep walking in his light, and rejoice in the hope of his victory over the darkness of this world. The world is indeed darkness. It suppresses the truth and embraces the lie. Romans 1.1 1, 1. It condemns righteousness and approves wickedness. It is cut off from God's life and under the sentence of eternal destruction. Now that may sound harsh. Did you notice know the plain teaching of Scripture over and over again? If you balk and protest and say the Bible doesn't say that, go and read the New Testament. Again, see if you can still come back to me and honestly maintain your objections. It's true. It's the sobering but true assessment of the human condition which God himself reveals to us like holding a mirror up in front of us in the scripture. But John tells us, verses 4 and 5 of our text, that Jesus has brought life and light into this darkened world. His coming into this world, it was like the sun, the light of the sun dispelling the darkness of night on a new day you remember actually the ancient prophet isaiah he saw jesus coming and described it in isaiah 9 this way the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them a light has shone. for to us a child is born to us a son is given And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And indeed, John tells us that what that prophet foretold has come to pass in Jesus. He came, he said, I am the light of the world. And John tells us in him was life, truth, righteousness, life. And that life, light, is the life of men. Jesus came telling us what is true. And he says, Believe it. And he came telling us what is righteous. And he says, Repent of your sin. And walk in it. And he came to die for our sins in our place so that we might be saved from the darkness of death and live forever with him. All we have to do to have the life that he provides is respond to the light of his truth in faith. As Jesus himself put it, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So you see, turn from the lies of this world. Repent from the darkness of wickedness. Come to him in faith, trusting him to save you from your sins and to give you eternal life. As John put it, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Light or Darkness. We must not let the darkness of this world discourage us so that we compromise with sin and error. John said, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Let us hear our Lord Jesus say to us in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world lies and wickedness are not going to have the final word believer the oppressive power of satan at the end of john's first letter he says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one that's not going to last forever as john put it in first john 2 17 the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of god abides forever So take heart, believer. Keep walking in the light. For he has said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And lead others to the light. Tell them about Jesus, that they might have life that he offers. And then one day, Revelation 21, 22, we're going to live together in a new creation where night will be no more. And we will need no light of lamp. Our son, for the Lord God will be our light and we will reign forever and ever. Well, in conclusion, who is the man Jesus Christ who has had an unparalleled impact upon human history? Well, this morning we've heard an answer from one who had firsthand knowledge of him. And what he's told us about Jesus is nothing less than astounding. It leaves us with our mouths open in awe. But what glorious good news it is. May it leave us filled with wonder and joy. May it draw us to Jesus in faith and worship. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of your Son, Jesus. The Word become flesh in the scriptures. Oh God, we recognize that John wrote as one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know that his words are exactly what you wanted us to hear. They are your words to us. We thank you that you've been so good to us to reveal to us Jesus, to send him to us, and and then to preserve the testimony of who he is, the witness to who he is, in the writings of the apostles, that we might read the first hand accounts of those who touched him and saw him and heard him and who tell us he is God, he is the Christ, he is your only hope. Help us, Lord, to be those who respond in faith. I believe, help my unbelief, grow us in the knowledge of Christ, deepen our love for him that we might be a people who are loyal to him in the bonds of our new covenant relationship with him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.